Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and I am joined today by a couple of, of conversation partners for our, our topic, our episode for today. So Rachel is back with us again today. Hello, Rachel. Hey, y'all. And joining us again on the podcast is Terry. Hello, Terry. Hello, Warren. Hello, Rachel. Hello. So Terry and Rachel and I are going to have a conversation about prayer today, uh, sort of, and about a, a story in which Jesus refers to the temple as a house of prayer. At least that's how he envisions it. And this, this conversation is going to be in conjunction with our current Sunday morning sermon series. We're going through a sermon series right now on Sundays looking at Jesus in prayer and just kind of looking at where do we see Jesus talking about prayer? How do we see Jesus talking about prayer? How do we see him praying? When and where do we see him praying? And, and kind of approaching this concept of prayer through the lens of, of Jesus in his ministry. And so there's one story in particular that is recorded in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke of Jesus coming into the temple. It's kind of a, a, a well-known story, probably for many reasons, of Jesus coming in and clearing the temple. And uh, he, he kind of gives some contrasting views of, of the temple space. And so we're going to read that today. I'm going to read it for us. And, and then we're going to talk about this story. What do we see Jesus doing in this story and specifically kind of connect that to the overarching conversation of, of prayer. And what can we take from prayer from this story and, and Jesus' thoughts, words here as we look at it. So this is going to be, like I said, this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to be reading it from Mark. Uh, I'm going to pick up in Mark 11, verse 11, and then I'm going to read down through verse 17. So, of course, there's all kinds of relevant stuff before this and after this in in Mark 11 that you could go back and, and take a look at later um, on your own if anybody wanted to do that. But for our purposes, we'll kind of focus in on that section, on, on Mark 11, verses 11 through 17. So here's what it says. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Okay, so if, if you happen to be following along in, in your Bible, uh, if you're listening to this and have that pulled up, or, or if you look at it in a Bible, you may notice that those terms, a prayer of nation, uh, a, a house of prayer, and a den of robbers are both kind of imagery that Jesus is pulling from what we would know as, as Old Testament text and references. So it's imagery that's probably known 
to to most of the people that he that are hearing him say that. But Jesus uses this this interesting kind of way of thinking about the temple as a house of prayer, and so that's kind of going to be where. Uh, the, the jumping off point, at least, or, or why we're kind of looking at this story in conjunction with this series. So, Rachel, uh, Terry, I'm curious if either of you want to start us off on what do you what do you notice in this story? We'll just start broad, as we often do, on anything you notice kind of first and foremost, just reading through this story uh, or, or paying attention to what Jesus is doing in this account. Well, I think that he's connecting himself to the Father. I think that Jesus is connecting himself to the Father and to the the faith that people already have up to this point. Because when he calls the temple of house a house of prayer, he's quoting from Isaiah 56. Um, so let me just read that verse from Isaiah 56, 7. Jesus says, well... Isaiah says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So Jesus is associating himself with what God has already done and with the temple, um, that it should be a space where people from all over the world and all tribes, not just the Israelites, but also the Gentiles can come and pray and find forgiveness of sins. Yeah, I would echo that same thought that one, in one case, uh, Isaiah, and then the other part about the den of robbers comes from Jeremiah, that both of those prophets speaking on behalf of God about what's going on or what is to go on in God's house. And now here's Jesus as the Son of God, the heir of the Father, who is now speaking with the same authority and same passion about his Father's house. And he's seeing what's going on, and he knows what the will of his Father is for the temple, that it was to be a place of worship where not only, as Rachel said, not only where the Jewish people would encounter God, but where all seekers could encounter God. And I think we often forget that the temple was also designated as a place where foreigners could come and bring their sacrifices and encounter the living and the holy God. And in the same way that Isaiah and Jeremiah calls to that, um, Jeremiah especially brings judgment on that. And I think you're also seeing this, and, and we'll talk about this more, about connecting the imagery of the fig tree uh, around Jesus going to the temple, that in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, who is essentially telling the, the Jewish people there that what's going on in the temple is not God-honoring. And if they think that just because God is in their midst, that that is going to protect them from God's judgment, then they're wrong. The same thing that happened to their brothers and sisters in the northern tribes is going to happen to them. And that just the fact that the temple, God's house, is in Judah is ultimately not going to be a path for salvation because they have dishonored God and dishonored His temple. But again, and again, you see Jesus making having a word of judgment on what's going on there in the same way that Jeremiah was speaking on behalf of the Father about 
the judgment God is pronouncing on what is going on in his house. Yeah, and you know, it's it's probably not that surprising that this is one of the, the places where um, not long after this, the, the religious leaders are basically ready to kill him. And I mean, right after, you you don't have to go far. It's just in the next verse when before we left off. It says, the chief priest and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him uh, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So this obviously puts him at, at odds with some of the, the leaders and certainly some of those who he is pretty directly at this point pushing against their practices and, and the ways in which they are, are utilizing the temple and the temple, the temple space. And, you know, to kind of to move, I, w- I want to come back to the house of prayer language as well here in a minute, but he contrasts that with this imagery of the den of robbers. And, you know, part of what it makes me wonder is, are these religious leaders who are kind of um, perpetuating this this uh this sense of the temple becoming a den of robbers how much of that was purposeful on their part and how much of it was was unbeknownst to them or or like they thought they were doing the right thing but had gotten so far off the track that this is what it's become and i guess what i mean by that is that i i can imagine that there were probably people at this time who recognized that what they were doing was taking advantage of other people for selfish reasons. And they're just, they're power hungry, they're greedy, whatever. And at some level, they probably recognized what I'm doing is self-serving. But I also wonder if there are some people who just sort of see what's going on there as as kind of, like they wouldn't have described it as, as a den of robbers. They would have said, well, this is, this is just kind of what life looks like. And we're kind of, this is, this is the way that temple life works. And... Um, I don't know. I don't know if there's an answer to that, but that's one of the things that I think about here. And and what makes these people mad? Like, does it make them mad that Jesus is 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 calling out something that is blatant and that they can see, or is it something that they're mad because Jesus is is calling into question something they see as legitimate for whatever reason? Um. A, a comment on that. I have always seen this, probably in the way I hear you alluding to it, Warren, which is Jesus is making a judgment about the finan- the financial and marketing practices. Because I, I think in one right. of the other passages, it says, you know, you've turned God's house into a marketplace. And so, and, and, I, and I think that's true. I think there is this financial piece that maybe there was some profiteering and some gouging and that what would normally be just kind of the, the pragmatic way that foreigners could come in and purchase animals that would be worthy of offering to God and to have the right kind of coinage so that they could make their, you know, purchase the uh, offerings. I mean, in order for that to take place, there is some kind of a business around all of that. And in much the same way churches do have physical plants many times and there's a financial piece around all of that and that can get out of control but i think there's something below the surface there too because when we when i when i pulled up the verses in jeremiah it doesn't seem to have anything to do with money he says uh 
Will you steal and murder? So steal, I guess you could say, well, that maybe there's some money there. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjure, burn incense to Baal and other gods you have uh, not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, God speaking, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. And so when I read that, it gives me a very different perspective. It's almost like in the same way thieves, when they're back at their hideout, feel like they can let their guard down. We're among other thieves. We can talk about our detestable things. We can, you know, we're not hiding anymore. We're actually among other like-minded people. We're in this den of people that have common motives. We're all thieves together. This is where we live. This is our den. This is our hideout. It's like when, uh, you know, on the TV show, when someone discovers the hideout where all the thieves are hiding. In this case, almost like a cave, uh, a real den. You know, they're at ease. They're not on guard because they're in their safe hideout. It's almost like the clergy here just lets their guard down. They feel like this is our place. You know, we can do whatever we want here. This is our place. Um, And it's no longer God's house even. Now, again, that's just another layer on top of what I can only imagine is it has turned into kind of this carnival-like, bizarre, uh, and when I say bizarre, I mean it in the marketplace standpoint of connotation, uh, although it may have seemed bizarre to Jesus to go in and, <laughs> and see everything that was going on. It was like a carnival and a circus of activity, and yet... Um, one other thing, one thought on this is this whole idea about what was going on, why it was so offensive to both God and Jesus is that, and I, and I think you you may be uh, about to bring this up later, is this was taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which is where the Gentiles would enter the temple and really one of the few places where they could enter as a Gentile and encounter God. So this was all taking place. This is what they, the Gentiles see as they're entering God's house. And I'm struck by something I didn't know until I uh, did a little reading on this. And back in 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon is actually dedicating the temple, 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 41, he says, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. For they will hear of your great name and your your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, and they will come and pray towards this temple. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Um, And it says, whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, do as do, uh, as your own people do, uh, may uh, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. So even Solomon in the dedication of the temple is saying, this will be a place for foreigners when they come because they've heard of your greatness and this will be a way that they can come and honor you and worship and pay tribute to you. Uh, but anyway, just several layers on this that the temple was always meant to be a place for other nations to come and encounter God. Um and that the clergy themselves 
seem to be seeing the temple as this safe haven where we're protected. Uh, we don't have to even keep, keep, keep up the pretense of doing what's right because we're protected because we're God's clergy here. Yeah, that's really good. The foreigners who would come into that temple, they would have to buy the sacrifices that they wanted to give. And so they probably came with their own currencies and then would have to have those be exchanged into the currency that was used in the temple. And so I think part of what is upsetting to Jesus is that they're not caring for the foreigner in the outsider, but instead they're economically profiting off of them by charging the little tariff or whatever on top of the exchange rate, which we still do now. Um, But this is specifically happening within the context of worship. And so I think the issue is that this is supposed to be a place where all people can come on equal footing to worship God, to offer sacrifices, and to receive forgiveness. And the, the people working there are taking advantage of the poor and the fact that people desire to worship God, um, which he commands them to do, and they're benefiting themselves off of it. So I, I do think there is that economic uh, part of it, but I think the the bigger heart is what you pointed out terry which is just kind of this hypocrisy of we can do all the sins everything and uh the temple just covers us and so it's all it's all good we're kind of the club of people that don't have to worry about the forgiveness of our sins because we're the ones running the temple um so i think the hypocrisy theme comes out with the the fig tree as well and so the placing of that story is important in helping us understand what's happening in the temple yeah and i don't know i maybe i'm trying to read too much into the words of this but so often when we read more into it we get more out of it but i'm reading (laughs) into the words of that he specifically mentions overturning the benches of those selling doves you know, he doesn't talk about the sheep and the in the in the cows. He talks about the doves, mm-hmm. and the doves were specifically what the poor people would have to buy for mm-hmm. for their offerings, and, and others could offer doves as well. But specifically, the poor that was their offering, and there was something about it that, you know, where the writer thought it was worthwhile pointing out that Jesus specifically was upset about what was happening at the table where they sold doves. Um, And again, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think knowing how much God values all people and how the poor are often just like the foreigner, the outsider, the one that doesn't feel as welcome into God's temple, that anything that would create the sense that you're not truly uh, welcomed here to come in and offer a sacrifice and now you may not even be able to afford it because we've jacked the price of doves up so much and so again I think it's what you were saying Rachel is that God just has a passion and a heart for the outsider that the foreigner mm-hmm. uh, is is seen as worthy um, and that is still invited to come to the house of God and the poor who by all worldly standards really don't merit um, the same kind of uh, 
welcoming, you know, as someone who has some substance uh, would is seen as being sometimes first in the kingdom. Mm. Um, anyway, those were my thoughts. I didn't mean to dominate the conversation. There was just so no, much. And we haven't even really gotten into the fig tree part much, but Rachel yeah. Rachel mentioned That's it good. too. So, And I think that, I think y'all did a good job of sort of uh, fleshing out what I was trying to kind of clumsily introduce there. That I, Because I do think, I think we find ourselves in similar circumstances sometimes where sometimes there are, there are blatant ways that I might act selfishly or in ways that would take advantage of somebody else. Um, but there are also ways that we just find ourselves sort of existent in systems or structures um, that kind of, that are, that are a part of just kind of propagating some of those things. And, and I may not recognize it, um, but that's where there's some work that I think we have to do to, to recognize what are the ways in which I am uh, kind of blatantly existing and um, participating in selfish activity and what ways is it just kind of a part of of the the environment around me and and you know you could take that to kind of a um a conversation about economic policy today which i don't think you know i think there's there's thought about economics just policy wise or personally what we do with our own policy with our own money and finances um that you know i think we would all agree that that as christians we should care for the poor we just might have different ideas about how that you know should go about being done in kind of modern context and society but even if you look at it from a personal finance standpoint i think there are probably ways in which we can self justify you know some things we do with our own money <laughs> that if jesus were to call us out on it might, you know, we might have to do some re-examining. So even things like that are important, I think, but just the ways in which we might sometimes um, just be blind to the impact that some of our actions have on on those around us, and particularly those who are less fortunate or not as well-resourced um, or disadvantaged or, or whatever it might be. And so I want to, to think about the fig tree for a minute because then I want to come back to the, house of, uh, to the house of prayers language. And so both of you have mentioned the fig tree. What do you all see as the connection for the fig tree in this story? Well, I think the fig tree is Jesus criticizing outward religiosity without a heart that's bearing good fruit. So the fig tree has leaves on it. And so that's a, a sign that therefore there should be something here to eat, even though it's not the season. I think there were some types of trees that they could really just, if they have the leaves, then that shows there should be some sort of fruit here. Um, and so I think Jesus is saying, don't act religious if you're not actually doing works of righteousness or um, if your heart isn't producing good fruit. So I think it's a metaphor for Jerusalem, for God's people, and then for me, <laughs> uh, for us. Yeah, I think, you know, it was interesting that Jesus went to the fig tree because he was hungry, um, looking for food. And and it looked promising on the outside, but when he got there and, and he, he inspected it closer, there was no food, and so he went away hungry. And and it feels like a harsh judgment, you know, but Jesus basically pronounces this judgment on the fig tree. And then later you see where when the disciples come out, it's all withered and dead. And there are many that feel like this is 
kind of a subtle way of Jesus pronouncing judgment on the temple and saying that, you know, the, the disciples saying, wow, look at, look what happened to the fig tree. And he's like, you know, you think that's amazing. There's going to be many more things that are way more amazing than that. And, and, and some people would interpret that to say Jesus is saying in this passage also that the temple itself will be absolutely destroyed and be taken away because it's not bearing fruit. It's like that tree with a lot of leaves but no fruit being born. And people come hungering for God's word and still walk away hungry uh, after their encounter. And again, I don't know if it implies that. Um, Certainly there's other conversations where Jesus does imply the destruction of the temple. Maybe he does here as well. But I do feel like, Rachel, that it does feel like an indictment for all of us who on the outside look looks like we we have something that's spiritual food for you. And then when you actually get closer that you walk away hungry after an encounter with us. Mm-hmm. We don't really... Uh, we we don't have spiritual food to give you because we don't really possess any fruit ourselves. When uh, and Rachel, when when you were talking, I, I thought of the word performative. That that sometimes those things can become kind of performative and not have any depth behind them. And I thought, you know, I think something like social media today becomes fertile ground for that. And I think um, can be deceptive for us sometimes that we can feel like. Well, I, I took a stand on social media and so I've done my part, you know, or I've made my I've made my thoughts known uh, or I've shared what I believe about this or that on social media. And so I've I've done my part, uh, I think, can kind of be a temptation for for some people and, and not that we shouldn't be sharing how we feel on social media. But that's that's a conversation for another day. The the, <laughs> the pitfalls and challenges and opportunities presented by social media Um but I think to me, when I think of kind of fig tree places in our current culture, that's sort of one that pops into my head where we are probably tempted sometimes to be a little performative in nature, if we're honest with ourselves. And I have I have addressed that personally, but I just don't post on social media anymore. <laughs> and it relieves the temptation of feeling like you have to comment on, on anything and everything. But that's the personal decision I've made. Uh, because it does start to feel like that, at least to me. It's like, man, well, I've got to say something or whatever. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think we have to be careful about that, about almost the practicing what we preach type thing. If this is if this is what we're claiming to be, if this is the fruit that we are are claiming that we are producing, um, we do damage to the kingdom and to our witness if if there is no fruit that's actually being born of that. Mm. There's a don't present yourself as maybe more mature or wise or closer to God than you actually are. And, um, you know, Paul talks about thinking of yourself sober minded. I watched um, a video today of a I guess it was a Catholic priest and he was sharing about confessional and the different scenarios that happen in confessional. And he said that he thinks one of the most fruitful encounters that happens in confessional is when someone comes in and says, Father, it's been about 20 years since I've been in confessional. I don't really know how to do this. Can you help me? Um, And then he talks with 
with them about, well, what's weighing on your heart and, you know, and that when people come like that, just with this sense of, I don't know how this works. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> Help me that that always bears more fruit than somebody who comes and kind of is like, Oh, well, I did all these things wrong and forgive me. Like, like, you know, outlining their sins, but in a way that feels without contrition and as like even that is almost a show of like look at me and all my sins and how I'm able to confess them to you um so it's something I struggle with a lot because I'm a prideful person and I want to present the best of myself and I want to appear you know a certain way and I think it's a it's a warning to me to to think sober-minded and to know um that I'm not always producing good fruit. (laughs) There are times when I am, but even when I am, it's from the Holy Spirit. God says that that fruit comes from the Holy Spirit and not from me. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's uh, let's think about prayer then for a little bit. So we've we've kind of talked about some of the the other aspects of this story, and I don't think that um, necessarily a teaching about prayer is is central to this to this story i I think as we've kind of said there there are other things that are going on here with what jesus is saying about the temple and about how we bear fruit and all of that type of stuff but he does refer to to the temple as as kind of ideally being a house of prayer for all nations and he says my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations that that's what is written so I want to t- think about that imagery for a little bit and specifically what what connections that might have for us as it has to do with prayer. And so as I originally started thinking about that, one of the, the places that I, I think I immediately went was just kind of connecting it to, to kind of modern structures. And so that's why I originally went to, you know, thinking, well, our, our modern church buildings don't function exactly like the temple, but they are kind of our meeting places. And so is there some, is there some connection there or, or ways that we might could think about our church buildings? But then the more I thought about it, I thought, and, and there may be some conversation to, that can, can take place there about, about our places of gathering being places of prayer. I think that's certainly something we could maybe think about. But, but the more I thought about it, I thought if there is a kind of, a more direct or apt, I think, temple metaphor for us currently, it is us as individual people, that that's, you know, the, the individual or the body of, of individuals are, are what are referred to as God's temple, that, that we are now, uh, you know, on, on, the, on this side of Jesus, we have this idea uh, from scripture that God dwells within us and that we are the dwelling place of God, not the temple that our church buildings are gathering places, but they're not where God, they're not the only place where God resides as he did, you know, in the ancient temple, that God resides within us. And so I, I do think there is still a way to maybe kind of think about church buildings and our gathering places and what we do there collectively. But but I'll, I almost started to think more in the direction of what does it mean for for me personally to embody that house of prayer mindset? How can I individually embody kind of a house of prayer um, posture mindset as it relates to my connectivity with Jesus, which, I don't know, that sort of shifted how, how I started to think about this story and maybe the modern application of that house of prayer imagery. 
Does that make sense to either of you or does that bring up something for either of you? Um, yeah, no, I very much um, espouse the idea of you, you see God descending on the tabernacle uh, when it was, you know, built. And then later when the uh, temple, when Solomon's temple was built, you see the, the smoke and fire in God's presence there. And then on Pentecost, you see the presence of the Holy Spirit and you hear the thunder and the, the violent shaking and the fire descending, you know, on the people there. In so many passages about, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of of God's Spirit. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I've definitely, you know, see that throughout Scripture that we are now the temple of God. And so what does that look like that our temple, that we as one of the bricks in the house that, that where God dwells, would be a house of prayer? And, and so, it may, you know, it's, I guess it's fundamental that I understand the purpose of prayer and in trying to understand what is the house, what, what, what would make a house a house of prayer. And I think, one, it's, uh, it certainly has to do with the actual act of praying that, you know, prayer has to take place. It would be hard for a house of prayer to be called that. It'd be like saying, well, this is a cafe, but we never actually serve food. Uh, <laughs> And so, you know, to not actually have prayer. But I, I think it also has to do with an attitude that's present. It, it's a, that humility. You, you, you know, you, when you enter into prayer, uh, you see Jesus contrasting, you know, the, the, in, the, in the parable, the, the Pharisee versus the tax collector of how they enter into prayer with God. One in a very prideful, boastful way. And the other in a very, I'm not even worthy to look up at you uh, stance. And I think Jesus speaking to that would say that that is kind of a prayerful posture for us is to always have that humility about our own flaws, about our own sins. And so be that vulnerable person and not the one that when people come to me with a question that has to do with God, that I approach it and I'm more righteous than you or I'm more prideful or... Uh, let me pass a judgment on you. It's, you know, I am saved by the grace of God just like you. Let's see if we can't discern God's will for you in the same way I try to discern him for myself. And so, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm wrestling with this myself right now, trying to figure out what does it mean for a house to be a house of prayer. But I see those as, you know, <laughs> prayer actually needs to occur and that you need to have a the right posture not so much a physical posture but a mental spiritual posture of how you approach God and what it is you're approaching God about I think seeking his will his discernment um, not just my list of wants and wishes that I'm saying God give me these things but if your will be done or your will be done and if it is in your will this is what I think I need but I am open to knowing that you give good gifts, so I will accept whatever gift you give me in this circumstance. Yeah, I think there were a few things that people were coming for um, under the category of prayer when they came to the temple. 
and you can see in the Old Testament the way that people prayed. Uh, a lot of the Psalms are just this worshipful praise of God, acknowledging God as creator, acknowledging him as sovereign, as loving, and as good. And so I think there's that adoration aspect and thanksgiving for what he's done specifically and for specific blessings. Here, I think that that it involves those things, but Jesus is also acknowledging that the people were coming to bring sacrifice and that the desired outcome of the sacrifice was the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus is cleaning up the house. And I kind of wondered about the thoughts of some of the people that were maybe intending to bring sacrifice and now they can't do it. Uh, Because it says in verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So they're like, we traveled all this way. We brought our money. We planned our whole year around this. And now we can't even offer sacrifice at the temple. Um, But it says they were spellbound by his teaching. And so I think when Jesus cleans out the temple, he doesn't leave it empty. He put himself in, in, in its place. And... They were coming to seek the forgiveness of sins through sacrifice. And this is what Hebrews gets into is that now Jesus has said those sacrifices are no longer necessary because I am there and he will be the ultimate sacrifice. So I think the house of prayer for him was the sacrifice that you bring and the forgiveness that you receive. And Jesus says all of that is satisfied and fulfilled in me. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, I think um, the temple was very much a physical, just also just a place of prayer. And, and so I think there is another aspect of this conversation that, that makes me at least think about the, the physical places where we engage prayer. And, and so I'm wondering for either of you, if there are, are there places where you find where you find yourself um, able to pray, I guess, easier or where prayer is more meaningful for you or where prayer flows kind of more naturally? Like, are there physical settings of that? Because I think, I do think, you know, on one hand, we would say, well, you can pray anywhere, which I think is true. But I do think there are probably at least certain times where setting matters. And even thinking back to the to the parable that, that Terry re- referenced about the the tax collector and the Pharisee, where the tax collector, you know, Jesus is very careful to point out that the Pharisee is standing on the street corner praying and the tax collector goes into the closet and closes the door. That the, Even the setting is is kind of starkly different between the two of them. So what, are, what thoughts do y'all have there? Are, there? are there settings, are there physical locations that are important or meaningful for you in terms of, of your own personal prayer life? Yeah, for me, I'll, I'll just a few quick comments. Solitude for me is always easier than with congestion when there's a lot going on. Um, I, I could not just stand and openly and, and audibly pray on a street corner and feel like it wasn't a show. Uh, it would feel showy to me to do that. Uh, now, again, not to put judgment on anyone else, but for me, I it would not be the right framework. It's much easier when I'm in solitude, you know, and nature is a, is a big place that would be, feel very prayerful to me. Um, well, Jesus models that too, about being in solitude. We'll come to that later in the series too as well. But <laughs> so you're following in Jesus's example there. 
but but Jesus, you know, also finds the ability to, you know, offer up prayers, you know, even when there's a thousand people there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think before the feeding of the 5,000, you know, he offered things up uh, in prayer. Um, and so, you know, as you said, Warren, it's not that one it's not that any sitting setting would prohibit it, but how could we, you know, provide that space that was the conduit for as many people as possible? And I think for a lot of us, it's just having quiet uh, absence of distraction. Some of those distractions have to be internal things that I turn off as well. I have to at least... If I'm going to be channeling problems that I'm working on or I have anxieties, then I need to channel that into that prayer and give those to God and not just let that distraction just keep drawing me away from God. But to actually, if it's that much on my mind, I I probably need to focus a prayer into that uh, and not just let it become something that pulls me away from God. Uh, In the way that, you know, David and others did when they were wrestling with something, uh, you know, brought that frustration to God. Uh, And so I I think sometimes there's things that are so much on my mind that that also makes it more conducive. You know, if everything's going great, sometimes it's easy to go through my whole day and not not feel a need to go into prayer. Other days you feel like, you know, I can't get through the day without prayer. Similar thoughts, I think. Um, to me, there's a role of prayer in solitude and having that secret place. My car can become a sacred space for prayer because when you're driving alone, you know that you're really alone. Um, whereas in your home or office or anywhere else you might be, there's always like, oh, somebody else can be hearing this. Um, so I think the car can become a holy place or the shower or bathroom whenever you have those moments of privacy. But I do tend to connect in a meaningful way personally during the communal gathering for worship and during um, that time of of worship together, I tend to stray from the lyrics of the songs and into prayer for people there and other things going on. Um, So to me, there's kind of like the solitude piece, but then also the community piece um, and the being in the presence of other people who are also being prayerful spurs my heart toward prayer as well. Yeah. Warren, I, I wonder, and this is off script maybe from what you were going to talk about, but as a minister who that Sunday morning worship service, there's so much planning and forethought and um, there are performative things about that as well that just have to occur in order you know, for God's word to be proclaimed. And and now in our current culture, all the audiovisual stuff and technologies involved is do you find it easy or hard for that time to be as worshipful or as prayerful for you because of all the other, I guess, responsibilities going on that most of us don't have at that time? For sure. I think so. And I think that was something Chris and I had talked about after our kind of online um, worship season was that it was easier, I think, for us to, I think we both kind of felt like it was easier for us to 
to engage in the worship experience, even though it was online, because our kind of active role in it had already finished. And so, um, so we could just engage, which was kind of odd, even, you know, since we were disconnected in many ways, um, but, but still kind of able to engage it in a different way. So I have found that to be, to be difficult for me. So what it means for me is that I'm very intentional. I try to be intentional at least about carving out time in the mornings before we, we come together for worship. And so like one of the ways that I do that is by intentionally driving out of my way to Shipley's every Sunday morning in Belton. Um, it's the best, it's better than the Temple Shipley's anyways. So I'm not an infrequent visitor there, but usually on some like work, like, you know, in the, in the week mornings, I'll go there as just kind of a, a decompressing time in the morning and listen to a podcast or something on the way. But on Sunday mornings, I'm very intentional about not having any podcast or music going. And that's kind of my quiet time, prayer time in the car um, on the way to get my donut and on my way back. And so I tried to like carve out time in the morning ahead of that time, knowing that, that it is more difficult for me kind of in that, in that space. And maybe other people do it better than I do of kind of being able to be fully present and worshipful in the space. But I do think it is, it is a struggle for me. And, and something that I, I feel like I'm getting better at though, as far as just engaging the worship time from a personal worship perspective. And I think even part of what has helped me there is Isley becoming more kind of interested in, in worshiping and, you know, she can read the words on the screen now and kind of follow along with the songs. And so she likes singing and participating with me and in, in singing most Sundays. And so that has helped me kind of uh, make a conscious choice to, to invest in that with her. Um, and, and so that has been helpful for me, but you know, I was thinking before you asked that, I was thinking that I often struggle to see the car as a kind of a house of prayer or a place of prayer. But on Sunday mornings, I don't, which is, I don't know, I hadn't really made that connection. But most days during the week, um, it is it is more difficult. But I think the, the setting, the place where I find it easiest to pray, kind of as you said, Terry, being in nature, like on a hiking trail is definitely the easiest place for me to envision or um, or engage as a house of prayer, that that's just where I find it easiest, most meaningful to, to do that. But you can't go out to a hiking trail every day, of course. But what I think is, is helpful for that in me, for me is that when I'm able to do that, it then sort of helps other places where I struggle for those places to be kind of as easily seen as a house of prayer. It, it helps me to engage in those places a little bit better, if that makes sense. It was like a refresher or something. And so I, I do think it's important to have those places where you find it easiest to pray so that when you're in those moments where it might not flow as easily, that that you've got something built up that you can return to and and you can kind of maybe do it a little bit easier in those settings as well. At least that's been my experience. Yeah, I wonder... Uh, moving this conversation just a tad bit is, you know, when we talk about what creates that house of prayer uh, sensation for us, is how do we do that for people seeking God? You know, I, it seems like in this description, and Warren, you alluded to it, 
is that the mere fact that this is a form of organized religion, that there is some order, some process, some structure, there's a building, all of these things creates kind of an infrastructure that has to be there in order for these things to happen. And yet sometimes those that are engaged in creating that structure, uh, it's easy to lose sight of what your real purpose is. What the, it's, it's, like, it's like having a hospital and then feel bothered or annoyed by patients. You know, it's like those pesky patients. You know, medicine would be so easy if it wasn't for all the patients that we had to deal with. And yes, that's the whole reason we exist. And, and so how, I wonder if, Warren, you have a perspective of how we as people who participate in organized religion, for all of the, the pluses and minuses that's associated with that, how does organized religion always try to discern when is something becoming uh, a hindrance to people seeking God or when is it something that's absolutely necessary and this structure needs to exist because it is basically uh, making it easier for people to come to God. You know, And I'm thinking about yeah, money is a big deal when anytime people sense that well, this preacher is all about the money or this church is all about just, you know, making sure the largest contribution possible. That, I mean, some of those conversations almost feel taboo because it's almost like, well, the structure needs a way to support it, yet at the same time, it almost feels like that, feels like that is a hindrance to people coming to God because they see the structure and the finances that it takes to support that. And are we becoming something that's just a barrier for people because of all the structure built around our organized, you know, theology and our places of worship. That's a, that's a good thought, a good question. <laughs> I don't know that I have a great answer for it right now. I do think there are, there are probably ways, yeah, in, w- in which we do that. Um, maybe even going back to kind of some of the thoughts I had earlier about kind of, you know, that den of robbers thing. I think there are probably ways that we do that just unintentionally, like you said, of, of ways in which we are, we are maybe hindering people from, from doing that. Um, I don't know. I think two things that I thought of when you mentioned that one were, one was that Andy Stanley's a pastor in Atlanta has written several books. He, he has a phrase that he uses that he says you need to, um, marry your mission and date your model. And he's talking about model of like church there, not, you know, other kind of model. <laughs> um, but, but he kind of talks about that, that if you become, he says, you know, if you become too married to your model, you're, you're eventually going to, to create a barrier to other people coming in. Um, and you're, you're not going to always be as, as effective in, in reaching out and engaging new people as, as you might want to be or, or think. But if you're married to your mission and allow your mission to dictate your practices and your model and, and what you're going to go about doing, then, then you can be more effective in that. And, and so I do think that sometimes we, we get into, especially for those of us who have been in church for a long time, you know, we just kind of get used to a certain way of doing it or... I think there's kind of a common thought now in, in some kind of modern American circles where we, we want to think really almost like in a business kind of standpoint about church, about church growth becomes, you know, I think that's one of the ways we can kind of sometimes get out of line where it becomes more important about church growth uh, that 
that is good if we have that mindset of bringing other people to Jesus, but sometimes it can be kind of, it can seem more like we're just trying to get a bigger, better church for kind of other perhaps self-seeking reasons or something like that. So I don't know. I, I think it, to me, it, it, it makes us, it should make us always come back to, to our mission and, and what are we striving to do and who are we striving to be, which maybe gets back at Jesus's kind of house of prayer versus den of robbers metaphor there that you've you've lost sight of what's supposed to be happening here so that would be my rambling off the cuff answer to your question i don't i don't think i think it's a balance of always being prayerful and asking for god's discernment in your own life it's when are my motivations not pure when when is when is the goal of this effort purely to boost my own ego because I would feel so much better if I were in a church that had more people attending than a smaller church. And not not because I see church attendance as this is more people who have come to know God, but just, right. you know, especially if I am the, the preaching minister, there, there would be that real temptation for me. I know my personality of feeling better about myself, of going, look, look at all the people I've attracted to God or who come to hear me speak as opposed to maintaining that humility of God, I thank you for using me, your humble servant. And I just pray that I can continue to serve in this capacity and, you know, always put the burden on our heart to, to do what needs to be done, but to never do it for impure motives. Um, and, and I wonder if in this case where Jesus clears the temple, <clears throat> that if it caused anybody to have second thoughts about what was going on, going, well, you know, now that we think about it, it was turning into just kind of this huge cacophony of of people buying and selling, and it really didn't feel like the house of God or a house of prayer, or people were just like, how dare you disrupt this? And, you know, I... I probably what happened the very next day. It looked exactly the same as it did the day <laughs> Jesus came, unless Jesus shows up again. And then they're kind of like, oh, that Jesus is here. Y'all better kind of keep it cool. Uh, you don't want that to happen again. Well, you know, one of the one of the really fascinating aspects of this story to me, or at least the way, fascinating in the way that you hear the story discussed, is that I feel like this story is often the one that you hear thrown out as almost like a proof text as a justification for anger, right? Or righteous indignation, we would say. We would say, well, I have a, I have a right to be angry about this. Even Jesus got angry and came in and overturned the tables and da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and that seems to be, um, I've got all kinds of issues with that and thoughts on that, but um, that seems to be to, to just cut this story so short of, of what Jesus is trying to do of everything else that we've been talking about for almost an hour. And, and, you know, none of us have ever said, and, and this, this story I think is really showing us that it's okay to be angry about the right things. And we could get into another, like, that's another conversation, but I do think it, when we have that kind of attitude about this story, I think it, it cuts it short of what Jesus tries is, is seeming to try to be doing here in teaching us about our hearts, our motivations, 
the, the fruit that we are bearing, the fruit that our religion is bearing, uh, the fruit that, that we're bearing as we collectively strive to, to do kingdom work together. And, and what, are, what are our motivations in that? What are we pushing towards? I think are all good questions for us to, to consider from this story. Well, thank you all for joining me for this today and uh, for thinking about this, this story and about prayer. And Rachel, will you, will you close us out in, in prayer for this conversation? Yeah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and that you speak to us and convict our hearts. Continue to give us more understanding for our own lives lived in obedience to you and for our church. Pray that you would give us discernment. Jesus, that we would welcome you into any and any and every area of our lives and that if there's anywhere that you do want to clear out in order to make more room for yourself, I pray that I and others um, would welcome you to do that. that. We would acknowledge your authority and know that um, that you have a right to, to judge us and to evaluate our hearts. I pray that we would bear fruit through the strength of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.